This is the Story Power Marketing Show with Tom Ruich. Make yourself comfortable and fasten your seatbelt. Tom and his guests are about to share powerful stories, trade business building insights, and have a few laughs. Tom created this podcast to help you captivate prospects and inspire them to act so you can get more clients quickly and easily. That's what powerful storytelling is all about. That's what this podcast is all about. So let's get this party started. Here's your host, Tom Ruich. Hello and welcome to the Story Power Marketing Show. My name is Tom Ruich and today's episode is called Ready or Not, AI is Here. My guest today is Jonathan Green. He is the best-selling author of ChatGPT Profits, Serve No Master, and more than 300, yeah, I said 300 other books. He is a celebrity ghostwriter and an artificial intelligence expert who now lives on a tropical island in the South Pacific. He has turned being fired during a blizzard into a thriving online business. Jonathan Green, welcome to the Story Power Marketing Show. Thank you for having me. It's so good to be here. Love to talk about some of my favorite subjects. I'm really excited. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to diving into AI. But first, I need to hear about that blizzard and getting fired and how that uh, led to where you are today. Yeah, I think that when you get fired from like your big job, and most people have a big event, like they, everyone gets fired from something where it's not your fault. And the first time that happens, you just I had this revelation. I was like, wow, they have so much power over me. I don't anyone to ever have this much power ever again. And there's this huge limitation that you just don't want in your life that comes from someone else being your boss. Like that was what really changed my life was that moment. I said, I never want to feel this way again. And I could have like gone and found another employer and jumped around because often when you get fired, they don't do cause or whatever. And it wasn't even that there that long, but I just realized that was my revelation. I said, I never want someone to be able to do this to me again. Because when you, the longer you're in a position, right? And I know people that have been fired on Christmas, people fired the day they have a new baby, people that are fired after 20 years, it happens to everyone. And it's like, there's no loyalty. We have this imaginary feeling of loyalty from our employers and it's completely, it does not exist. And so many people found over the past few years when companies had to shut down, like you have to shut down your business, but your landlord still makes you pay to rent the space. It's like, the people at the top do not care about you at all, right? You watch all these people who destroy their companies and still get their bonus that year, right? Mm-hmm. And that's really how it works. So unless you're the person at the top, that structure stinks. Yeah. So the faster you can exit that, and that was really what was critical for me. I go, I would rather make less money, but have more control. And I sure. really value freedom and the ability to make decisions. And you have, you can have so much freedom, like choosing what time to get up, what type of clients to work with, what type of clients to projects to work on, what type of people to work with. I don't work with people I don't like anymore. Every one of us has someone at the office that we don't like and we can't do anything about it, right? Because we don't have the power. Suddenly all of these things that we've given up, you get control over again. And I just, that's something I needed in my life. 
So how how have you done it? How have you gone from that moment in that blizzard when you're laid off and and you're mad at the man and and you're having this this epiphany? How how have you traveled from that point to this point where you have the freedom? You work with who you want. You live on an island in the South Pacific, and and you have uh, really the life and the business that you that you want. Yeah, I saw this ad. I don't know how it got into my inbox for this program. I remember so much about it. It was three thousand dollars. I was like, I don't three thousand dollars. You crazy, mm-hmm. right? I'm struggling to pay rent and stuff, and. It was all about how do you can build a local business. And I was like, this seems amazing. I watched all the webinars, all the sales material, like you do when you're just the first time consumer. You have no idea about the marketing elements and the automations of emails, none of that stuff, because you're just getting pulled into the story. And it closed and I go, okay, I missed my chance. That's fine. And then Saturday they go, hey, you know, a few spots have reopened, but they close at midnight. This is your last chance. And like at 1151, I said, you know what? I have $500 left on my credit card. I'll do a six, $500 a month for three months. I'll do the split pay. And it was the hardest, one of the hardest things I've ever done. It was so scary. But when your back is against the wall, you can go all in. And because of that, and that was how to sell, really how to sell video SEO. But I went in and I immediately, I bought that Saturday night and I had my first client by Thursday. So within four days, someone had given me a check, which was unbelievable. (laughs) Like what? And I was like, oh, I've already, I'm going to just invest this money in learning how to do this in software and in tools. And that's what I did. And I was like shooting videos with people with uh, like those flip cameras and the Kodak version mm-hmm. of the flip camera at the time, which was like this revelation and affordable camera that could shoot HD and have a little microphone. And some of those videos are still ranking 12, 13, 14 years later on Google and in YouTube. So they're still working for those clients. So I really dove into that. I really went all in on the system and I made way more back than my investment. And it showed me what was possible. I was making a couple thousand dollars a month. Then I hit around $10,000 a month with clients. And I realized that so many of the things that I thought were rules, like what I could charge, what type of people I could work with, how people would talk to me, all of that stuff wasn't real. It was all artificial. And I had clients who were unbelievably famous. One of my clients won a Grammy while we were working together. I've worked with, I've had billionaires call me billionaires and be like, wow, I didn't think you'd answer. And I was like, I thought if I don't answer, you could just send someone to make me answer. I've seen those movies. Like, <laughs> I, feel like answer. I didn't know it was optional right at that point, but you have these amazing things that are possible when you start to believe in yourself. And it takes a while. Everyone who goes through this process charges way too little and works with clients. They shouldn't, you learn the hard way we all do. And right. I went through that process. And as I became successful, I hit those certain walls. I was like, oh, you know what? If I spend, I promise too much, then I don't have time to deliver. If I spend too much time delivering, then I have no time for sales. And if I lose a client, it takes a really long time to refill that spot because I can't keep the machine running. So I learned about that and outsourcing and white labeling and different ways of delivering the service because the least important part of the process is actually delivering the SEO. That's a commodity. Mm-hmm. because there are tons of teams that can do it. There are tons of experts around the world that can know that. I was like, oh, I don't need to do that. I can just do the sales and get a good team to deliver for me. Right. And I did that right. for a while. And then eventually it just became too hard. There were too many Google updates. I couldn't keep up. You know, Managing the team wasn't working for me and I was doing better building products. So I said, oh, I could just teach people how to do this. And I don't- yeah, and, really- and Jonathan, before you dive into that next chapter, I want to I want to interrupt- because I want okay. to go back to something that you told at the very beginning of the story. 
you invested in this course, $500 a month on your, you know, maxing out your credit card. And how many days was it before you had your first client? Four. Four days. So between the lines of that story is something super, super, super important that you didn't say that I think we need to, to explore for just a second. And that is you bought the course, you dove straight into it and you implemented. And in my experience, selling courses, uh, being a consumer of courses, being in programs with other people, the vast majority of people will invest in something like this. Number one, they won't even crack the lid on it and begin to consume the content right away, if at all. And number two, they'll go through the whole thing. They'll uh, think about it. They'll watch it again to make sure they got it straight. Months later, they haven't implemented anything. And so if, if, if there's one lesson to take from that story, and there were many, by the way, but if there's one lesson only, it's get to work implement if you're making the commitment follow through on the commitment and you know if you do the work and implement good things happen four days later you had a customer and, and on it went yeah so many people who go through my programs now are like i need to learn everything when i got that first client i barely could describe seo mm -hmm. i really knew very little about it i just knew enough to close the sale and just had a few metaphors that I'd put together that was the sales element. And I said, you know what? Nothing motivates you to learn something like someone's paid you to do it. And I was so motivated because I was like, I'm making money. Of course, I'm going to watch these videos. Of course, I'm going to implement. Of course, I'm going to figure these things out. And I did so many things I wouldn't do now, right? Mm -hmm. Like really going to someone's house, doing an entire, like going to their business, doing an entire video shoot like included in the fee of an SEO fee that I was, it was $200 a month for the first three months, but I don't care. Right. That's amazing for me. Cause I paid 500, yeah. right. I've already recovered 40% of my investment and I'm figuring it out. So it's very important to know you don't have to know what you're going to do. Cause the worst case scenario is I say, I can do SEO. I can't, I give her back her $200. Mm -hmm. That's the worst case scenario. And I was already getting more clients and I was just taking action. So many people, get stuck there. They think they have to know before they do it. And you don't, you can figure it out. And I was getting paid to learn. I was like, well, she's paying me to go through this course. And the next client paid me. And I said, oh, I can buy a piece of software that will help me do this better. And mm -hmm. I would invest in other things. And listen, my website was so bad. <laughs> it was dark blue text on a black background, which is basically uh -huh. unreadable. Uh -huh. And it was such an ugly website. And everyone's like, oh, you need the perfect website. Here's what I would say to clients. I'd say, listen, they go, your website's so ugly. I go, yeah, I'm so busy working on client websites. But if you want, when you hire me, I can spend some of the time you pay me for working on my website instead. And they would always <laughs> say no. They always right. said no to that. So whenever right. you, every asset, when my website was bad, that was, I go, yeah, it's bad because it's been all my time with clients. And when it was good, I was like, yeah, it's good because I have a really successful business. So whether it's good or bad, that became a selling point. It didn't matter to me, whether I have experience or not experience. You know, whether it's me by myself or a big team, it doesn't matter. I can always describe it as something that works, right? That's my advantage. So yeah, if you have a really big team, great. You call call any of those companies that are competing with me at 5.01 PM. Let me know how many of them answer the phone. Right. Right. 
Now that was when I was on my own, that was one of my selling points. Right. And then when I had a team around the world, I go, listen, 24 hours a day, someone on my team is working on your website. You send an email at 2 a.m., someone will answer it. So that's the advantage when you have a team. We have someone in the Philippines and someone in Europe. Now you're covered for the three time zones. Right. So whatever your weakness is, just make it your strength. Oh, I have so little experience. So yeah, I'm fresh and I'm motivated. I can make quick decisions. I'm not caught up in the past, right? I'm not doing SEO techniques from 2018. I'm doing the current cutting edge modern stuff. That's why you should hire me. Good. So whatever it is, that became my selling point. And I would just leverage my weaknesses and figure it out. Yep. Yep. And you built the SEO pra uh, practice. You moved on. You went to there. I'd love to skip ahead. There's a lot. There's a lot in your story. I know we talked about it a little bit before uh, we we started this episode. But I'd love to skip ahead to last year or a couple of years ago when you discovered the power of AI and began to really leverage it into what you're doing. And uh, if if we can tell us a little bit about your AI practice, how you came to write the book that. Uh, that we mentioned in the bio and, and what you do now for your clients? Sure. So I there have been a couple of AI tools around AI writing tools for a few years that were always okay. They would always make these huge promises that they could never deliver on. And I would mm -hmm. say this is, and I would use them. I was like, this is great for a rough draft. I would never publish anything written by these tools. And these are big tools, very expensive that spending hundreds of dollars a month on these tools and creating blog posts and content. And it's okay but everything I would still have to go back through and be an arduous writing process, really long to go back there, rewrite everything, but it would do a rough draft. And then with ChatGPT 3.5, the game changed. I saw some content. I go, this is readable. This is something that it can put out content that I would be okay with. Mm -hmm. It passes that sniff test for me as a writer. I go, this is okay. And that really changed everything. And I watched a lot of YouTube tutorials about chat GPT at that point. And as I watched them, people would always list these limitations like, oh, it can do this, but it can't do that. And I said, you know what? I bet it can. So I have this mind that works in a certain way. And the way I think is very connected with the way that AI LLMs are built. The way chat GPT and a lot of these tools work is very natural to me. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these walls other people hit, I go, I bet there's a way around this. And I got very good at it. And even when I work with other people that have these massive AI courses, they show me how they do things. And I go, I bet I can do it a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So that's really where it started from. It's a lot of um, that old TV show, Name That Tune. I bet I can name that song in eight notes. And I'm like, I bet I can do it in seven prompts instead of eight. Yeah. I bet I can do it. In I'm always trying to do things like for Pinterest. I was like trying to get the perfect one prompt to create a bunch of pins. I was like, I don't want to do it in two prompts. I want to do it in one. That mindset is how I got very good. And part of it is just being very interactive. So from there, once I realized I'm good at this, I'm better than everyone who's teaching tutorials on YouTube. There are people who are better than me in certain areas, like more technical, but I'm better at explaining it. I'm better at being practical. A lot of people make these amazing tutorials that are not useful mm -hmm. because they're just esoteric, like how to write a song or a poem or do silly stuff, but not business stuff. I said, oh, there's an area here in between. And some people that are really technical, it's useful, but not understandable for the average person. So there's a narrow space in between. And that's really why I started carving my space out. And then I started looking at the books on Amazon. I grabbed a couple of the books that were selling really well. And I read the top, the top two and I got really upset because they had a lot of prompts that were fake. 
I could tell the books have been written by ChatGPT. The person who had written them was obviously had really low ethics because they were putting out content that doesn't work, which I have a major problem with. I don't care if the book's written by AI as long as the prompts work. But I noticed that they had prompts in there that I know for a fact don't work because you could test them, you get a bad result, and the person goes, oh, I guess ChatGPT doesn't work. And they give up on it. And then two years later, when they're behind everyone, they go, wait, no, but it didn't work when I tried. That's reasonable. I bought the instruction manual. It didn't work. I assumed the tool was broken, not that I'd bought it because this book had a thousand reviews. And then I went and I went and looked at reviews and I said, oh, they're all fake. Mm -hmm. So it's very disheartening for me. And then the number two best-selling book in the same thing, I said, oh my gosh, these two books are not good. And there's a, the other thing that is they all would have a prompt, but no idea what you're supposed to get in response. So it'll tell you what to type in, but not how to do an error correction. So I think when I'm teaching prompting, it's so important for me to show you, here's what I, why I did it. Here's what I wrote. Here's the answer. So that if you copy and paste my prompt and you get a different result, you know, something went wrong immediately mm-hmm. without that piece. So at the beginning of my book, one of the things I say is I say, listen, the book is longer. Every time chat GPT responds, I'm giving you the entire response because I have to. You cannot learn without that. And in case I get the review, that's like, it's so annoying. He puts us in the mic. I don't have a choice because you will not learn. It's like, listen, half a, con- a phone conversation. So those are my two motivations to write a book that works and was not written by ChatGPT, and then to write a book and to give you the actual answers. So every prompt in the book is a prompt I'd used. I went back through my previous conversations and pulled every single prompt. So it wasn't something I wrote just for the book. 90% of the prompts are prompts I'd made money from. I say, here's a prompt I did for a client and it made money. Here's a prompt I did here and here's how it made money. And the times where it's a prompt that didn't make money, I go, listen, I had to rerun this prompt on ChatGPT4 because I have to give you the modern response. So this, the, and I tell people, so when it's me writing, it's regular font. If I'm prompting, it's bold. And if it's ChatGPT responding, it's in italics. Nothing is hidden. And it allows people who go through it to 100% understand what I'm doing. It's instruction manual that I wish I'd had when I started out. And it's really a powerful foundation for anyone who's like, I'm trying to figure this out. I bought a couple of books and they're not working for me. I said, listen, here's the, the way I like to make an instruction manual. I like to make it... You can see exactly what I'm doing. It's very apparent. It's very practical. So I don't cover every possible thing. If it's not something I've ever done, it's not in there. But it's meant to be a foundation. And by the end, because I've taught you so many prompts along the way, you go, oh, I start to understand the language of AI. I can now play around and modify the prompts. And you start to get a dabbling in prompt engineering, which is not as scary as it sounds. It just means where you change some words around to get a little bit different right. result. Now, it, it, you've criticized these two books that you mentioned as being obviously written by AI. You talked about the AI tools that preceded ChatGPT as requiring this arduous rewriting process. With your books, are we talking about a book that you wrote or a book that AI wrote? And if it's a book that you wrote, um, how do you strike that balance? It, was it an arduous process? And I guess the, the broader question I'm, I'm asking is how do you balance the, the use of AI as a beneficial time-saving tool against the, the need to put the human touch to be the actual writer without making it the arduous process that it used to be. So for this was the hardest book I've written in a long time because I couldn't dictate it. I normally dictate my books and then Uh can do with AI and cover so much. But because I was writing 
parts of the book were pre-written. So the prompt and the response is pre-written. That's all sure. put in, that's blocked out. So then I'm writing the description before and after. So I have to write that by hand. So mm -hmm. every one of those sections was 100% written by me because, because of the nature of the book, mm -hmm. chat GPT and all of the AIs are very bad at talking about themselves. It, it can cause thought loops. And so it's a very dangerous path. So that's where you'll tend to get a lot of mistakes. Yeah. Because it's not good at self-referential. It's not good at self-identity, right? I think therefore I am and can't do that. So it causes a problem. So I go, I can't do that. I don't want to rewrite the entire book. These parts, even with misspellings, there's some misspellings in the book because I misspelled the original prompt. I go, look, this is how I wrote it and this is what I got. So you, this is the real. So I, when I was editing the book, the entire book was edited by ChatGPT. But again, I was just editing the in-between mm -hmm. and saying, don't change that much because it's important, the original language. So that's as far as I took it. But for a book on any other topic, what I would do is really, if I'm doing fiction, the way I write fiction with ChatGPT is choose your own adventure. That's how my mom tricked me into being into reading as a kid. It's a really uh -huh. great, it's what I make my kids read. I love those books. And there's a bunch of different versions. Now I know choose your own adventure is a trademark term, but they're great books. I just bought a whole bunch of my kids for Christmas. I'm a huge fan of what those books can do for kids to get you into reading because you have control. So there's actually, you can change the ending and that's really exciting. So the way I write a fiction book, I'll say, listen, give me seven ideas for a science fiction book. Mm -hmm. And it'll give me seven. And I'll say, you know, let's take number six. So I've made a decision. I'll say, okay, tell me the main character. No, I don't like that main character. Let's change this. And those little changes are how I write. And they go, tell me who's the, pro here's the antagonist. Who's the enemy? Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Give me a big picture outline of the book. And I'll do a gig. Okay, who are all the characters? Make a character sheet for each character. And I'm outlining kind of mind mapping. It follows a couple of different outlining methods, like the snowflake method. I'm creating all the characters first and then the thin outline, then the thicker outline, then the super deep outline. And also that allows me to error correct because if it introduces a character that I don't have on my character sheet, I go, wait, where did this character come from when we're actually mm -hmm. doing the writing process? So you can write amazing books using this process of mm -hmm. purely ChatGPT writes the book, but you're constantly making decisions so that you're right. affecting the story. It's very never ending story as well. So you can go that far down and I'm okay with that because you're still there driving, right? You're stopping it from yep. putting in things that are boring or weird or out of touch. So there's still a pretty important element that you're involved in. So yeah, and what what I think is is really important for people to understand when you're describing this is that you have chosen certain frameworks for building for assembling the book. You you were talking about snowflake method and so on for outlining and building a more detailed outline and so forth. So you come to the process with an understanding of how you wish to architect something and then you have a conversation with the robot about hey fill in the blanks according to this framework now you can ask ai to hey, tell me what framework works for this kind of book and it can help you do that but i think it's a better result when you have as as the human interacting with the robot a clear understanding of the framework that's certainly what we teach we talk about how to interact with ai for creating your emails or your blog posts, knowing what the framework is before and then prompting AI to work within that framework. Yeah, I always do an outline first, whether it's an email and I'm choosing which structure, structure like AIDA. If I'm doing a sales letter, I wanna know 
what the beats of the sales letter are going to be first. Right. So that what I don't do, and this is the kind of beginner mistake is say, write me a sales letter or write me a book because exactly. it's so odd. <laughs> a lot of people, like the first example we were doing a year ago was like, oh, write me a song. I was like, yeah, I can write you a song, but what genre? There's hundreds right. of music. Genres. So you have no idea because a, you know, a hip hop song ver from the eighties versus the two thousands versus a country music song versus a blues song. Yep. versus a dance music song from Italy versus a dance music song from Spain. They're all different. They follow different BPMs and different structures and different instruments. So saying, write me a song, it's so meaningless because it's so broad because the definition of song is so different. Same thing as write me a poem, right? There's yep. a huge difference between write me a short poem or a long poem. Odys like what is the Odyssey as a poem? And that's like hundreds of pages. So Without you putting in any structure first, you're going to get a random result. But the more layers of structure you put in first, the better the results you get. And again, it allows you to error correct because you could notice, wait, you skipped a section. Mm -hmm. That's really important to get the structure first. Yep. Yeah. And, and what about voice? Let's talk about voice for a moment. So you have the structure. You're asking AI to, to draft or write the copy within the structure. But how can you ensure that what's coming out is consistent in voice and reflects reflects your voice? There's a couple of ways of doing this. That's a great question. The first thing is you can create, you can feed it stuff you've written. So you can say, I'm going to give you blog posts I've written in, or, or something. And I'll upload it. You tell me when you have enough information to sound like me. So that's one way to do it. That's gotten better and better now with GPTs. You can actually upload and create and it saves it, which is really great. That's one way to do it. The other way is to use data that's already in its database, which is a little easier, especially if you're a newer writer or you don't have, or you're not a great writer, you can pull from really amazing data. So if I want to write, like, let's say I want to write a sales letter, I'll say, Hey, who are the, who are the sales letter copywriters that you have the most examples from? What I'm actually asking is, who does it have the most data on so that when it's pulling from, it's pulling from a wide variety of sales letters. So if I have one copywriter with 10 sales letters and one with 100, one with 100s give me a lot more variables to play around with to get really good results. So then from that list, I'll say, write me an email in the style of, and then I'll use, and I'll say, okay, rewrite it in the style of this copywriter. I'll go through all 10 or all 50. And then you look at which one you go, I like this one the most. That's one way to do it. Okay, that, that's the first part is creating your style. The second way to, you could also merge. You can merge two different people. So it could be fiction writers, nonfiction writers, they're all in there. I'm in there, by the way. So you can say, write in the style of Jonathan Green and it will sound like me. So you, I'm on both sides of this. Okay, I'm in its database. I was surprised when I found out because I didn't think I was famous enough, but I am. Mm -hmm. You can also choose brands. So I play around with this. Today I was playing around with, I was like, sound like Apple, sound like Prada. And they're slightly different, but you can sense the language. What I really prefer, all the ones I've tried, I really like Harley Davidson. I'll mm -hmm. say sound like the brand Harley Davidson, but don't mention motor, any specific motorcycles or motorcycle parts. Mm -hmm. And you're going to get words like open road, power, freedom, wind in your hair, America, like a lot. Because you realize, oh, their ads all have this I'm riding a bike at sunset feeling and no one can tell me what to do. It's a good feeling. Mm -hmm. Wind in your hair, nice. it's a great feeling. Um, whereas like Apple, it's always about 
elegance, but also being cutting edge and a little bit ahead. Prada is even more. And it's interesting because you start to notice, oh my gosh, I've never paid attention to their language. So depending upon the type of thing I'm writing, the brand stuff can be good, but some brands never write headlines or so they'll always put the name of their product in the headline because that's the type of ads they do. So that's a limitation there. Mm-hmm. So I'll usually play around. But once you do that, once you choose the voice, and so you can go through 50 or 100 copywriters, depending on what you feel okay with. You go, I don't want to do a person that's stealing, fine, just do a brand. Or I'll only do a person who's dead. Or I'll only do a person who died 47 years ago, so their stuff is out of copyright. That's fine, mm-hmm. too. You can choose whatever you feel okay with. You could choose me. <laughs> like, I'm in there. There's nothing I can do. And I've had to, had to go through that and accept that. So I have a couple that are my friends that I use. So I have a couple of people that I'm really good friends with. And I send them the prompt I created around them. I was like, check this out. It sounds like you. So I said, I'll never sell this, right? This is just something I'll use, but I've created a character. It sounds like you. It's pretty cool. And you just have to accept it because it mm-hmm. you can't put the genie back in the bottle. The second thing I'll say is, hey, whenever you're this person, like let's say you're Jonathan Green AI, you start and end every response with, and then you choose an emoji. Doesn't I don't have a preference. I choose a different emoji for each different character. The reason you do that is so that when it stops responding with the emoji, you know that it's drifting. You know that the responses are no longer locked into that style. And you can start either, usually I start a new conversation back with that original character prompt. So that way I go, oh, I have a warning sign. That's my canary in the coal mine. So I choose a style and then I put a warning in place for me. Usually the emojis will disappear and two or three of the responses are still okay. And then it will just drift off. And that's how I edited my book. I put it in Jonathan Green mode. I had it be me editing his own book. And he did exactly why I don't want a twin brother. We got in a lot of fights. I was like, stop rewriting everything. We're just doing an edit. But I'm guilty of that. Whenever I edit, I do massive rewrites and stop myself. So I was fighting myself. I was like, what I would do. And when it would hit a certain point, I'd go, oh, we got to start a new conversation. So I'd restart as me and just start doing the next sections. But because you've created a character, because you've locked it into a specific style, you can restart and still have that. You're not going to lose that start with a new conversation like you would if you have to refeed it content you've written before to start it off. So that's why the second method, even if you're not in there, and look at this, it's not fair for you to say, oh, just start to be in there like I am, right? So that's why I say choose someone who you like what it sounds like and then build from that. And there are so many choices yeah. that you're going to find something that sounds a lot like you and then you're golden. Yeah. And, and so that last point I think is important finding someone who sounds a lot like you, the, the question I have is how, when you're, you have to show up, not just in writing, not just in the book or in the blog post or in the email, but also in person, especially if you're a coach, a consultant, a professional service provider, a lot of the a lot of the interaction is ultimately going to be face-to-face on Zoom, on the telephone. And how do you reconcile whatever your voice is in reality with that voice if you pluck it from AI? Oh, I like, you know, I like Harley Davidson or I like, I want to sound like copywriter X. How do you reconcile the voice that you're putting out there that's AI generated versus the voice that you show up with when you're sitting across the table from them live. So when I'm doing copywriting, what I look for is things I would never say. Mm -hmm. And I've had this with copywriters I've paid before. I've had copywriters put in phrases. I go, I would never say that, right? It doesn't sound like me. It sounds like it's not the way I talk. 
So it happens in it in regular people as well, right? So that's the most important part. You actually read the sales letter. And if there's anything, I would never say that. That's what you change. Or I'm uncomfortable. Like I'm uncomfortable with certain levels of puffery and headlines. Like I won't say you can make $257,000 in a single afternoon, right? For the $7 product, even though that will sell better. Like that stuff pushes the envelope for me and it's not natural. So I speak in a more casual style, but I found that you can pretty much with copywriting, people don't really pay attention and go, oh, it's weird. Your sales letter doesn't sound like you. I've never had, I've never run into that in the entire time in the business. You can get away with a lot in a sales letter because they're often written by other people. And as long as it doesn't say anything you would never say, and you find that by reading it. So that's the important part there. As far as the consistency with your own voice, that's where it comes in with you go removing the stuff that is something that you don't, wouldn't say. Whereas, oh, this is a fancier version of me. That's okay. People don't really notice that. It's more they notice if there's internal inconsistencies. Like, hey, the beginning of the sales letter doesn't sound like the end. That's a bigger Mm -hmm. deal because everyone sounds different than they write. When I write a book, I can tell by looking at a book if I wrote it by hand or if I dictated it. Because if I write it by hand, I have a different way of talking. I have a different type of punctuation than if I dictate. It's My dictation is more casual. And when I shifted the dictation at the start of my books, I said, listen, this isn't a lecture hall. This is you and me sitting in front of a fire. This is how I write my books because it's casual and it's actually because it's dictation. Mm -hmm. So I speak in a improper English, right? I don't make grammatical mistakes in writing, but I do in talking. We all do. So you can just say that. But I find that the more important thing is if you say things that are inconsistent, that's the bigger thing. Not, oh, you always use this word, but you don't use it in you know, in real life, like people don't pick up on that very much. So you're pretty safe with that. Mm-hmm. 300 books. <laughs> how many of them were, how many of them did you write uh, after diving into AI? How many uh, before you dove into AI? Only one after using AI. So I, for a couple of the client books this year, I have used AI for cleaning up stuff for organization editing parts more than for any of the writing. I don't really use it to write stuff for clients very much, just a little bit. Usually if like I'm taking an interview from a client, I'm cleaning it up. That's the most I'll do, but everything before this year was all me. So that AI thing is a recent thing. Um, I'm still figuring out how it's going to kind of play a role with my clients, but I always use AI to speed me up, never to replace me. Mm Mm-hmm really important point speed you up never to replace you and even even what we were talking about where you can train ai to write in your voice you're describing a process where you're going back you're reading carefully you're removing those phrases that don't sound like you and so those who believe that ai can be your set it and forget it easy button ghost writer uh, spit it out and publish it, um, they're in for some trouble, right? That's the biggest mistake out there. And that's why a lot of the marketing I don't like says that. I'll give you an example. As I was looking at LinkedIn today and a bunch of people have clearly been used because ChatGPT has an accent. It says certain phrases. Yep. When I talked about it, it said, ChatGPT loves to say in the changing digital landscape. So every time I see a LinkedIn <laughs> post that starts with that, to me, that's a massive red flag. Right. And a couple of those have slipped past me when I'm kind of, I usually find something. I'll say, oh, write a post about this. So I figure out the idea. I find the article. I put some stuff in it and I noticed it was doing that. I was like, this is weird. Or use the word pondering a lot. No one uses the word pondering. 
And that's an accent thing that I've started to notice. So I go, I have to really be careful with my content because if I'm noticing and people notice it about me. So I'm using less and less AI content than I was. It was still my idea. I'll come with an idea for the article or sometimes it's like a short post, but I was like, I got to be more careful because if I can fingerprint it, especially now that I've written about it, everyone else is going to look at my old posts and catch me. So that's the important thing. If you publish content without reading it, very dangerous because you don't, you have no idea what's happening. And that's where you can run into errors. That's where you can have mistakes. So you can't remove yourself from the process completely. That's just not something you want to do. So whether it's emails or books or poems, read it before you publish it. Yeah, the phrase that uh, that I keep seeing, the AI fingerprints all over is, uh, I hope this email finds you well, or I hope this message finds you well. It's It's showing up on message after message after message. And it's an example of, AI going out and finding the most, you know, it, it, it's consuming content. So when it finds that phrase, that's very common. Here's the way that emails open. Here's the way that posts open. It's going to drop that thing in there and it, it, it perpetuates cliches, doesn't it? Yeah. And that's what you want to watch out for is those things right. that you don't say. Right. So there are certain phrase, um, that you say, like when I was writing an AI for my friend, he couldn't tell it was an AI until he saw it. But here's the kicker. He goes, no, I say, and here's the kicker. Uh, so it was really close, right? It was yeah. very impressive. He goes, he was very impressed. I made this AI to sound just like him. He's a really, really, really well-known copywriter. And I got that close. I was like, oh, that's pretty good. That like, at least there's something that you can detect. Most people wouldn't notice it, but it's like, no, I don't say it like that. I say it like this. That's what you want is your catchphrases. So do pay attention to that, especially in those areas at the beginning and end of messages. That's where it's the biggest giveaway. For example, AI always likes to write a conclusion for every single right. response. It always has a conclusion. It's like my chapter has 17 conclusions in it. So you, that's an obvious thing. It used to say a lot as an AI generation model, da, da, da. You have to watch out for that stuff because it will slip past you. But most the most important thing is to see it as a tool that you work cooperatively with not a replacement tool. It accelerates you. It doesn't replace you. I still read the content that gets published under my name because it's at the end of the day, it's still my reputation. Like we all yep. saw from that lawyer who got in trouble. He's like, well, ChatGPT wrote it. The judge was like, yeah, you're still in trouble. <laughs> it's not okay, a good exactly. lawyer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So Jonathan, where can people go to find you, find the book, learn more about what you're offering? Sure, the book is on Amazon, every bookstore. It's called ChatGPT Profits by Jonathan Green. You can find me by searching serve no master every single search result every single social media platform that's me so you can go to page 10 of google it's still going to be all me i really own that term serve no master my website servemaster.com and that's where you can find a bunch of free gifts and a bunch of cool stuff to help you start launching on my business and see how you can start to use ai to really save a lot of time and also cut down a lot of overhead right just decrease those yep. employee and software costs yep any parting thoughts the most important thing is to try. So many people have used ChatGPT or any AI one or zero times. It's not too late. It's still early days. 90% of people are not using it yet. You can still get in, have a massive first mover advantage. And this is really the biggest opportunity I've ever seen in online marketing in 30 years. Yep. Because everyone wants AI. No one really knows what good versus bad AI is. Every company wants it. Huge opportunity in AI services and doing stuff for your own business. The barrier to entry to building your own online business has just dropped through the floor. 
you don't have to know how to code anymore. You don't have to know how to build your own website anymore. You don't have to do all these hard technical things have just gone away. All the technical stuff that has always been hard and kind of kept out people that are non-technical, it's gone. So it's a huge opportunity. And listen, in a couple of years, it's going to switch from optional to mandatory. So better to jump in now and really get that first mover advantage than be trying to catch up two or three years from now. Ready or not, it's here. Yep. And you said 90% or so aren't, aren't using it. And of those who are using it, 95% aren't, aren't using it effectively. They're dabbling They're They're making all these mistakes that we talked about. So Jonathan Green, thank you so much for your insights. I encourage everybody to go uh, search for his book. We'll share all of this in the show notes. So you don't have to remember or rewind to hear what Jonathan uh, told you where to go. And thank you again, those of you who are here listening or watching, thank you for spending time with the Story Power Marketing Show. If you liked what you heard, if you liked what you saw, please go to your favorite podcast platform, Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts and give a five-star review so you can share the gift and let other people know that this is content worth hearing, worth watching. Go to Story Power Marketing, uh, storypowermarketing.show to get past episodes, show notes, videos, uh, all of the stuff about, about this podcast, and storypowermarketing.com, where you can go for free resources to transform your content from prospect repelling to client attracting. Storypowermarketing.com. You can sign up for my email list. You can download free resources. And you can also uh, uh, connect with me on LinkedIn, email me directly, all those great things. Jonathan Green, thank you again. Enjoy your time and your island in the South Pacific and uh, look forward to crossing paths with you, with you again soon. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be here. Thank you. for listening to the Story Power Marketing Show with Tom Ruich. If you liked what you heard today, visit storypowermarketing.com resources, where you can sign up for Tom's entertaining, informative, must-read emails, download free business building resources, and discover other opportunities to help you harness the power of storytelling. That's storypowermarketing.com slash resources to help you captivate prospects, inspire them to act, and grow your business with greater ease and joy. Also, please remember to subscribe to the Story Power Marketing Show with Tom Ruich and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.